Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. In the 17th century, Mongols, known as Manchu from northeast China, invaded the ethnic Ming dynasty of Han Chinese in South China. And the, South, the Han Chinese are an ethnic group native to China, so the Mongols were aliens, really. Today, 92% of China's population is Han, Han Chinese. The Mongols attacked the Ming dynasty and established the Qing as the reigning dynasty. The Ming dynasty that ruled China for 276 years, from 1368 to 1644, had defeated the Mongol Yuan dynasty begun by Genghis Khan in 1215. So in a sense, the invasion of Mongols in the 17th century was what we today call payback. Invasion by alien forces was not the only crisis that Han Chinese have suffered during the long history of China. As early as the third century AD, warlords disrupted public life and divided China into fiefdoms. That led to the fall of China's second dynasty, the Han Dynasty that ruled from 206 AD to 220 AD. Some old China hands, specialists who study Chinese history today, see in this experience the rationale of the People's Republic of China and its control over the Chinese military by the Communist Party. By 1644, the Qing Dynasty had established hegemony over the Ming Dynasty, and the Qing was the last dynasty to govern China until the establishment of the Republic of China by Sun Yat-sen in 1912. There's Mr. Sun Yat-sen. Very interesting guy if you have a chance to read about his background. He was inspired by William Jennings Bryan, and that gave him the, uh, the desire to establish a civil, a civil government in, in China. Sun Yat-sen's Republic of China was the first attempt at establishing a non-authoritarian civil society in Chinese history. That effort was destroyed in 1949 by Mao Zedong. Military rule is an ever-present threat to civil order in China, and after Mao's totalitarian Communist Party expires, as it surely will, the danger of military rule in, uh, in China is very real. If you compare the span of 1,692 years of Chinese history, from the fall of China's second dynasty, the Han Dynasty, in 220, to the year 1912, when the Republic of China was formed, we can appreciate the accomplishment of Sun Yat-sen. And we can appreciate also that over 2,000 years and more, Chinese intellectuals, scholars, and artists developed a mode of survival in response to crisis, invasion, and war. During the invasion of the Mongols in the 17th century AD, fierce battles were waged, and the gentleman here in this picture you see, and Emperor Kong Zhen, committed suicide when the capital of Beijing was occupied and Mongol forces massacred hundreds of thousands of Han Chinese in order to secure a new dynasty. I once taught a course titled Ancient Concepts of Order and co-taught another on comparative religions. In preparing to teach those courses, I read many of the classics of China translated by Columbia University scholars for use in courses in its Southern Asia Institute. 
and during the visit to a visit to the Republic of China in 1974, I acquired a volume of works of Confucius and compiled and compiled that was compiled by Scottish sinologist James Lake. I also toured the National Palace Museum, which contains the greatest collection of Chinese art in the world. I was a mere tourist until I learned that ancient Chinese painters and poets developed a response to crises in their nation's long history that is called reclusiveness. As a political scientist, I realized that this was a response by the Chinese to loss of their country. And I was compelled also to ask if there were parallels to 17th century China and 21st century America. That isn't as crazy as it seems, and this month I published an essay that compares political culture in the United States today to Spain in the 1930s. Overarching my presentation today is this question. Is reclusiveness of Chinese intellectuals to loss of their country in the 17th century relevant to American political culture today? Countries can be lost by invasion, and they can be lost by changes in the beliefs of, mer of members of society. Dr. Jack Tierney at the Institute of World Politics, my friend of many years, and Marek Chutkovitz joined me today with a study of two other countries that were lost, France and Poland. We hope that by taking a look at France and Poland in the 20th century and China in the 17th century, they may give insight into changes occurring in America today. The focus published by the Santa Monica Bar Santa Barbara Museum of Art is on Chinese scholars intellectuals, poets, and artists from the 17th century who, detailed, who dealt with loss of their country. In the lead essay in this study, Professor Peter Sturman writes that reclusion truly was an art in China and offered an immensely attractive tableau for artistic expression. After the decline of the Han Dynasty in the second century AD, China experienced a long era of political instability and during that time, poetry increasingly looked to landscape for inspiration. Professor Sturman writes that we see reclusion reflected in aspects of the reclusive life amidst mountains and forests. Disengagement from affairs was equated with clarity of mind and purity of intentions. Reclusion in art is a concept borrowed from the term hui yan, reclusion in painting, which was used to describe a person of superior virtue who eschews fame by choosing to limit the expression of his talents to this particular skill, sort of like Jack Tierney and me. Uh, Sima Shen, uh, a Chinese historian of the early Han Dynasty, who lived from 2006 BC to AD 20 to 220, commented on two 11th century nobles, Bo Yi and Shu Qi. Sima Shen called them men of great virtue but cautioned that if a recluse did not establish a name for themselves, do not somehow attach themselves to a great man, how can they give hope that their fame will be handed down to posterity? According to Bush, Bu Yi, and Shu Qi, King Wu, who ruled in 1043 BC, failed a critical litmus test of moral propriety. Sinikian writes, some people say it is heaven's way without distinction of persons to keep the good perpetually supplied. Unwilling to be sullied by the dynasty's immorality, Boyi and Shuki starved themselves to death on Shuyang Mountain. 
Later inspiration for the 17th century reclusiveness was found in two 5th century poems of Dao, Dao Yong, Yong Ming, who lived from 365 to 427 AD. Those two poems were titled Home Again and Peach Blossom Spring. After serving in a number of relatively low-ranking civil posts, Dao retired in 405 AD and spent the rest of his life as a farmer recluse. Peach Blossom Spring is a tale about a fisherman who is attracted to peach blossoms along a, st a stream where he finds a passage to a hidden valley where residents are ancestors of a community who 600 years earlier fled the violence of the tyrannical Qing dynasty and established a world unto themselves where they were, were protected from changing times. Professor Sturman observes that Peach Blossom Spring, the poem, offered a spatial template for the fundamental theme of escape and transcendence that provides meaning to landscape in Chinese art. The influence of Tao Yongming is found in the important art of Zhang Shengmo, who lived during a time of crisis of the first decades of the 17th century. Zhang Shengmo was a grandson of Zhang Yongbian, a wealthy collector of ancient paintings, which is significant because the great works of Chinese art were the possessions of those of great wealth who kept art in their homes. And Zhang Shengmo would have been able to study these works while growing up in his family estate. Invitation to Reclusion and uh, Self-Portrait in Red Landscape uh, are two important works of Zhang Shengmo. According to Zhang, inspiration for these, his paintings came from poems by Zhu Xi of 307 AD on the theme of beckoning the recluse. Xu Xi was a celebrated literary figure of the early Qin dynasty in uh, 265 AD. Here are the opening lines of Zhu Xi's beckoning of the recluse. Walking staff in hand, I beckon the man in reclusion, the wilderness path bringing past with present, a cliffside cavern free of intricate construction amid the hills, a resounding zither. Professor Sturman writes that Zhang Jingmo's Invitation to Reclusion is the first in a series of long landscapes with poems on the theme of summoning the recluse. We have an ins inscription by Zhang Jingmo that explains that his intention in Invitation to Reclusion was to help him escape from the pressures of everyday life and put him in a frame of mind conducive to finishing his long scroll. Only a purified mind would allow a landscape of bright, smiling forests and hills far from the vulgarity. Zhang Shengmo ends his description as follows. Somewhere is on this slide, we have that. He says, I, will, I well realize that many in the world are not recluses and that they want to be recluses but are unable. Alas, there must have been others who became recluses before, before me. I say, please summon me for reclusion. I shall summon myself to reclusion. Self-Portrait in uh, Red Landscape by Zhang Jingmo was painted when the Ming Emperor Kangsheng took his own life and the capital Beijing was occupied. The painting is intended to express mourning, but not necessarily despair. The color red evokes support for the Ming imperial family, whose surname Zhu means crimson. The last two lines from Shengno's first poem evoke the spirit of reclusiveness. 
Men of mark are few and desolate. Who is there to depict? Valley clouds, obscured in shadow, as if an ignorant fool and a change of heart. I laugh at my three summons to the recluse. Who would have believed that I was already one with the wild man? Chung gave to his painting the title Zhao Yin. Zhao means to wave one's hand and call, invite, or beckon. Yin can refer to both reclusion and the one who lives in seclusion. <coughs> this is invitation to a conclusion to a reclusion by Zhang Xinlo. And here are some examples of paintings evocative of reclusiveness from other Chinese paintings of the same era, from 1597 to 1672. Lu Hong, Ten Views of a Thatched Hut, Peter Sturman writes, is a metaphor for rustic values. Mature pines refer to longevity and youthful vigor, qualities in accord with the general conception of one who pursues the Tao or Wei as a recluse. Dong Quincheng, the one, the one, 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 one hall. The name Wan Luan is, is chosen to affirm his spiritual ties to an idealized reclusion of the distant past, literally meaning to admire and envy. The painting features a famous recluse, Chen Jiru, in his hut. Chen Jiru's otherworldly poignancy is shown in his own personal pure land. Pure Peter, Professor Terence Thurman writes, Chen was the model for modern disengagement in a period when reclusion subtly transformed from quaint and this marketable topos to moral imperative. There he is in his hut. Though a recluse, Chen Juru became a prof professional tutor and writer. Here's how he's described by Professor Sturman. His popularity was immense. One contemporary describes encountering Chen on a painting excursion, normally a private intimate affair, in the company of a sizable entourage of admirers and celebrity chasers. So successful was Chen at marketing himself that his image was soon appropriated and used promotionally hung in wine shops and tea houses to advertise wares. His name was attached to coverlets and sweet cakes. Chen is an example of a recluse of what they call the recluse of the marketplace. Zhang Qing, who lived from 1564 to 1647, uh, painted a portrait of Pan Guitai uh, that uh, portrays a scholar as a man of the hills in full, uh, in the full picture, he, he wears a white robe, indicating that he has no status in, in society, and carries a bamboo staff, which marks him as a wanderer. Zhang Zhang Feng's painting of 1658, Immortals: Secrets in a Stone Cave, Zhang created a mysterious other world and a hidden gathering in a cave where three figures and a servant ponder a game of Wei Qi, which is chess. Chess is symbolic of pondering strategy. So they were in recluse, reclusion, they were also thinking about other things. Kun Kan uh, spent three months in 1644, deep in the southern wilderness of Hunan province, fleeing Qing forces. His temple on a mountain lodge expresses detachment from the realities of the 17th century. Kung Khan focused on a spiritual quest that transcended the immediacy of worldly affairs. 
His Buddhist faith affirmed the Buddhist belief in the illusory, in the illusory nature of the world. Zhu Fang's Mount Guanyong, uh, Professor Sturman writes that Zhu Fang was renowned among Ming loyalists for uncompromising behavior, refusing to enter the city of Zhuzhou after the Qing conquest. Zhu documented in quasi-topographical fashion the landscape of reclusion in which he lived. The landscape of Wu is, re is refashioned to reflect the blunt honesty of the true recluse. Badashirashandran's globefish is an interesting, another example. Fish were associated with happiness, and Badashandran painted different kinds of fish with distinctive characteristics. Badi was, deep, was deeply loyal to the Ming house and spent years as a practicing Buddhist. Dr. Sturman writes that Bada's floral paintings of blossoms took the artistic expression of reclusion to a level of profundity unmatched by any other. Bada's unwillingness to paint mountains and waters was a deliberate statement of alienation. Bada was deliberately exploring the theme of transformation, suggesting in his landscapes the presence of some overarching principle that ties one element to another and all to the artist. He was a member of the branch of the, of a branch of the Ming royal family in Nanchang. After 16, 1644, he disappeared into a Buddhist community. He erased his birth identity and adopted names frequently, more than 21 over the course of his life, to evade capture. In that context, the happy globefish may be interpreted as the inedible pufferfish. Pufferfish or blowfish. Uh, are not edible, and if you attempt to eat them, you could be killed or die. That's a blowfish. These scholars are not alone. At a conference of the National Association of Scholars in 2010, where I suggested that academic tenure should be replaced or eliminated, one attendee told me that he would not have attended the NAS meeting had he not recently earned tenure. A political scientist at the University of Vermont invited that I invited to teach a course at Yorktown University told me that when it became known that he was leaving Vermont for another position, a member of the University of Vermont told him, we know who you are and we would have gotten you. One study by George Mason University researchers found that at most the ratio, ratio of Democrats to Republicans in the humanities was eight to one. In sociology and anthropology, that ratio is 20 to 1. It gets worse. In states dominated by progressive Democrats like Oregon, one of our colleagues conducted a survey of faculty at the University of Oregon in Eugene. He found that political diversity was absent in departments that deal with political or cultural issues. At the University of Oregon, with more than 22,000 students, the departments of economics, political science, and planning and public policy had zero Republican faculty. The remaining departments had only three Republicans. What are the options of scholars and writers who do not share the dominance, dominance of, of the contemporary political correctness of our academic elites? Yan, author of Official Histories of the, of the Lang and Chen Dynasties, writes of three types of reclusion. Paragons who would never consider accepting a position at court, those who hid in the marketplace and at the court, those who feign madness as, and as though deaf and mute, they cut off the world. 
Yasser Epsilian compares these three types of favor favorably to others who spend their lives in a disordered age, contending for profit and striving for temporal success. That, of course, is another choice we have, rebuke of principle and selling out. And also consider the most extreme option, suicide. Here's the good news. Though suicide rates have risen in recent years, increasing 21% increasing from 2000 to 2012, for Americans at least 16 years of age, the lowest rate of suicide is among teachers, educators, and librarians. So let me return to, if suicide isn't our problem, let me return to uh, my reason. Classical liberalism that focused on individual liberty, the economics of free markets, and constitutional limits on the federal government began to replace in colleges and university courses during the Great Depression. The consequences of that became evident during the civil disturbances in opposition to the Vietnam War, which erupted in 1968 at the Democrat National Convention held in Chicago. That war, which Lyndon Johnson called that bitch Vietnam, seriously challenged LBJ's Great Society program and the president himself. In order to place the Great Society in context, I'd like to refer you to Denise D'Souza, who wrote a biography of Ronald Reagan and compares uh, Reagan to, uh, to Lyndon Johnson. Though LBJ saw the Great Society as the fulfillment of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, D'Souza writes that the Great Society vastly expanded the reach of the central government with a battery of new programs and entitlements. Suddenly, the federal government was building mass transit systems, funding college loan programs, subsidizing the arts, and getting involved in all kinds of activities that were previously reserved for the states and the private sphere. Today, progressive ideas are so rooted at all levels of American government and higher education that the life of the recluse of 17th century China is relevant for understanding that our institutions of representative government exhibit few who are highly qualified. Our, or consider that our legal classes promote the principle of rule of law in ways that enable them to rule us. Our religious leaders forsake life in the world to become and to come in order to make this world a heaven by striving for social justice. And our professoriate excludes those not inclined to advance progressive ideas and ignores the dangers of the centralized powers needed to achieve social justice. As their ideas take root, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, and we will once again see days in which ideologues emerge who take control and impose their ideologies on entire nations. In France, Napoleon in Central America, Simon Bolivar. In Russia, Lenin in Germany, Hitler in Italy, Mussolini. In China, Mao Zedong. With them comes war, loss of country, civil war, and authoritarian rule, as occurred in Spain, where General Francisco Franco imposed law and order and deadened civil, civil liberty. If you've ever said to yourself, I no longer recognize my country, you may soon be compelled to choose a life of reclusiveness or purchase a supply of foods designed to last 20 years. Thank you very much for taking time. Do you have any questions? I'll be happy to answer I know this is a stretch, that uh, something as far away as what, 400 years ago should have relevance to us. But I really think that many of our, my colleagues, Jack Tierney's colleagues and mine, exhibit signs of reclusiveness. They, we, we don't speak up 
in public. We don't write articles in conservative journals. Uh, we don't run for office. There are all kinds of things that we do to hide from the disapprobation of our, of our colleagues in academia, if we want to stay in academic life. I wouldn't be here today if I had stayed in academic life. I, I, I'd be dead. The stress of it is just too much. It's, the best way to survive is to get the hell out. So I guess you might say, I'm a recluse. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you.